My guest today on Mission Impact is Dr. Damari Miller Rodriguez. This is one more in the Culture Fit series that I did with Peter Cruz. Damari, Peter, and I talk about the interconnection between having to code switch and imposter syndrome, the pressure of being the only, and her hopes for the upcoming generations. Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without being a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. Um, and this week we have Demary. Hey, Demary, how are you? Hey, Peter, I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Um, for our listeners, could you just share with us a, a little bit, a little tidbits about your professional background and, and yeah, just who you are in general? Sure. So uh, my background is I am a Hispanic woman uh, born and raised in Spanish Harlem, New York. I've lived in the Poconos for the past 14 years. I'm the director of the Leaders of Color New York program, which is focused on building a bench of black and brown leaders in New York. I serve on Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf's Commission on Latino Affairs, representing the Poconos region, as well as served on his redistricting reform commission. And I say that my uh, most important job is being the mother of 11-year-old twin boys. Oh, wow. That's, that's incredible. As an expecting parent myself, uh, that seems challenging. <laughs> Congratulations. It is challenging. <laughs> um, but in regards to, to your professional side of it, um, uh, when you are working with uh, those leaders of color um, who are trying to enter or establish their positions in, in, in mostly white dominated spaces. Um, just to like jump us off, like what pressures do you see um, that exist to either code switch or assimilate, um, you know, kind of remove aspects of themselves just to like, I guess, be taken seriously? Sure. So a topic related to leadership that is emerging for women and for leaders of color more now than since it's been coined in the 1970s is the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And this week alone, I've talked about it several times because women and leaders of color struggle to have the opportunity sometimes to achieve a formal title and position in society, to climb the ladder of success, to um, penetrate the political sector. And once they do get there, to really be able to maintain the status, if you will, because there are expectations that you should speak a certain way or behave a certain way, sometimes even dress a certain way, right? For the women, we talk about things like, is it okay to wear hoops in the workplace and be still considered professional? Um, for those of us that are bilingual, is it okay to use a little bit of Spanish or Spanglish? I was raised in New York City and we speak Spanglish, that's another language. And so just being able to understand when and if you have to shut off some aspects of yourself, which then does not allow you to be your authentic self is a challenge in itself, right? Um, and then when you do get a seat at the table, how are you able to gain and maintain the respect of your colleagues, particularly individuals that may not be as qualified as you, but based on privilege are at the table and absolutely feel like they belong. So the conversation around the imposter syndrome is, do you internalize those concepts and those notions that are just throughout society 
and or not. When you're able to leave those aside and push through what you're hearing, like you don't belong at this table or there's no room for you, then you're able to really show up as your authentic self and challenge the status quo. But that's a day-to-day struggle. So often I feel like, um, I mean, sometimes and, and certainly more nowadays, um, there, there are direct messages that are very clear and explicit about you don't belong. But I feel like a lot of times it's, it's much, it's more subtle than that. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and oftentimes for, the, for people who are in the dominant culture, who are white, who are white men, unfortunately, may, may not even realize they, they're taking up as much space as they're taking up or kind of, you know, assuming um, competence on, on the part of other colleagues that look like them or themselves in the space. Absolutely. The implicit bias in the professional setting is probably the greatest influencer of the environment of whether or not somebody feels like they fit in based on their gender, their sexual orientation, their um, their age, their race or ethnicity. And you're right. Sometimes people don't even realize because they have been in spaces where everybody looks like them and talks like them. And here comes this individual that doesn't fit what they are used to. And sometimes they just don't know how to react. And I've heard comments from older white males at the same tables as I am say things like you speak out of turn or your tone will not be tolerated. Um, You know, sometimes I'm seen as and this goes for women leaders and then also people of color sometimes and often mostly women of color who are leaders where you hear things like you're aggressive or you know you are uh, abrasive or you know you're I've been called unprofessional you're unprofessional because you speak up and you speak out but for me it's a conviction in leadership you know you asked me about working with leaders of color and as a leader for leaders of color I feel like it's my responsibility and I have to speak up and speak out otherwise what's the point of being at any given table yeah I was just thinking about you know you say you've been labeled aggressive and um uh, you know studies have shown that that same behavior whatever people were perceiving uh of how you were showing up um, that same behavior on the, on the part of a, of a white man would be um, labeled as assertive or leader-like. You know, so the exact same way of being, way of showing up, is just perceived in so different a way depending on what your social identity is. Correct. And that brings me back to the conversation about code switching that we were starting to have uh, around leaders of color, particularly when you're trying to fit in you see yourself in a position to either compromise your identity in terms of not speaking about certain aspects of your life. You know, we see that a lot when it comes to the LGBTQ plus population, but then also in terms of shifting, if you're in certain places and spaces, you might try to adapt the way you speak, use words that you think will be more acceptable in that space versus when you are with family and friends and individuals that you feel comfortable with. Um, Myself being in academia, oftentimes I use layman's terms because that's how I best communicate with everyone at every level. But when I'm in the academic spaces, individuals are using big words 
I know the big words. I know the meaning of the big words, but I choose not to use them because I'm a communicator. And it's more important for me to be able to connect with all individuals at any level, whether they have access to formal education or not. So it, code switching and fitting in is really about making choices around how much of, of yourself are you willing to compromise in any given space or, or moment. Yeah, and the thing that I wanted to just touch on briefly was just that this is a thing that is universal, um, regardless, because there are a number of people who are, you know, shifting careers or moving to different cities where, you know, maybe if I move to a more progressive city, this probably won't be an issue. Um, or like, you know, trying to escape it because it's, but the thing is that it's unavoidable. And in, in your experience, moving from a bigger city to, you know, I get the Poconos, you know, and being there for an extended period of time, like, was, was that labor intensive in trying to, I guess, use this vernacular? Was it, I mean, because that's the assumption. It is labor intensive, Peter. It, it, it wasn't. It is. Um, and, and it will be because these are the systemic issues that we talk about. So you're right. Regardless of where you go, there are geographic perceptions. So if you move from the north to the south, there are certain expectations that individuals in the south have that somebody from the north may not be able to to live up to, right? So regardless of where you go, you have to realize that there are cultures within communities. There are people who have lived in certain areas for many years. So some of the issues that I have had to grapple with in, in our community, and I've been here 14 years, is everything from speaking with an accent, which people don't realize, right, is my New Yorker's accent. Um, and so I've been asked about, you know, uh, the way that I speak, where am I from, et cetera, um, being labeled a transplant, and, and not fully being accepted by individuals who have been here for generations, who to me have a lot of wisdom to share in terms of um, the economy of the community, in terms of the educational system and other systems that I wanna be part of and I wanna help in. And I've traveled the country, so I have a wealth of knowledge and expertise that now is starting to support our community as I'm leading the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts for our school district. And so in these, in December of 2019, I was sworn in as the first Hispanic elected to the East Strasburg Area School District School Board. And as the Congrats. first, <laughs> thank you, as the first and as the only, you often have to educate people along the way about what it's like to be you, about what are the issues that are unique to people like you, you know, in this case, students, educators, community partners. Through that, I also represent us on the board of the Colonial Intermediate Unit 20, which is 13 school districts from Delaware Valley out to Northampton County and focusing on special education. And there, I'm also the only Hispanic as well as the youngest and several other first and only. And there is pressure that comes with that. But for me, there is also a reward that I have the opportunity to help create a space that is more inclusive for individuals who are different. They don't have to be like me, but they just have to be different than who's been at, at that table before me. Yeah, and for for people who are number, like a first and only, because I think that's like what's happening now, right? Many organizations, many companies are hiring their first ever diversity, equity, and inclusion person. Most commonly it's a woman of color because of uh, the glass, what is it, the glass cliff? <laughs> You're kind of taking over, right? Um, for, for those people who are trying to establish that type of environment, what are some like key like things that you have like tried to implement but were unsuccessful or things that were like successful right off the bat that they should either try to replicate and make their own, but 
um, things that helped you get off the ground and establishing that? In terms of the individual, whether you're the person that is pushing for change or the person on the other side of the change, certainly having a personal lens on the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation and thinking about what is my perception of diversity? How do I promote a more inclusive environment? How do I move the needle forward on my organization, my community, and society broadly becoming more equitable um, and, and being able to serve everyone who wants to be served by this institution or deserves by, you know, to be served by the institution if we're thinking about a school district or a nonprofit organization or a company with a target audience. In terms of the organization, it's really about evaluating the policies and practices that are in place. Are those conducive to being an inclusive environment? Are those conducive to moving the organization, the institution towards equitable practices or not. And then there's a level of buy-in that has to be gained from every individual at the organization at any given time. You're not gonna get that buy-in all at once, but you do have to work with individuals in the respective roles so that it becomes institutionalized. And then if you're the person that's pushing for the change or driving the change, you have to be patient, you have to be mindful, and you have to be sensitive to meeting people where they are and knowing that just because you want people to buy into DEI does not mean they will. And just because you want an organization to take on this kind of effort doesn't mean they will or they can. They may not have the capacity, the expertise, right? The individuals on the team to be able to do this work comprehensively at least. Yeah, and I, I would just speak on, on my own experience that this also uh, is prevalent in corporations or, or, or organizations that are actually not white dominant as far as the people involved because you know racism is so systematic that we kind of and white supremacy culture is just prevalent everywhere that we're just kind of perpetuating it without really recognizing it. I remember being in a diversity equity inclusion meeting and um, having someone say well we are all brown and black people so we're we don't have the same types of struggles mm -hmm. but that's furthest from the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. So you touched on a couple of things. One, there's there is racism and prejudice amongst like individuals, right? So within the Hispanic community, there are over 20 countries represented under that umbrella of Hispanic, Latino, Lat Latinx, right? And there is racism and sometimes division amongst even those countries, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans or Ecuadorians and, you know, and, and Dominicans, etc. So we cannot assume that just because it is a black or brown institution, these things are not happening. But also in terms of the tenets of white supremacy culture, when we think about perfectionism and that pressure, right? Talking back to the imposter syndrome that we touched on a little bit ago, that pressure to be good at things or to have to work harder to be at certain tables because you don't see a way in or nobody that looks like you has been there or nobody in your family has achieved the level of higher education. I mean, I'm one of less than 4% of Latinas in the United States with a doctorate. I was raised by my grandparents who went to the first and third grade. They, they didn't speak, read, or write English fluently. And what they did know, they self-taught. Where would I have ended up if I didn't have the opportunity for mentorship, for nonprofit organizations giving me the space to know that these opportunities existed? And then, at the college level, having advisors that supported me and Latinas that looked like me, where I learned that a doctorate was a possibility. That wasn't anything I had ever thought about before, but I was open to the possibilities when I got to college. 
-hmm. I was the first in my family to graduate college. So then my responsibility is to pass that along to others in my family, in my community and society broadly. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's because so much of what you're saying, just like I have experience. I'm also um, Puerto Rican first in my family graduated. I think when uh, when I graduated, I think I read this like study that said like about like maybe three to 4% of Hispanics just like go to college. And then of that three to 4%, about 8% complete. <laughs> and it was just like very, very, it, it is just an immense pressure and kind of burden to kind of be the representative of everyone. So like the assimilation just has to come natural because you have to kind of shift and navigate through these spaces. Um, do you feel like you could answer this how candidly as you want, but do you feel that that is more existent in education or in politics? <laughs> oh, this is a whole nother session. Uh, I think in both. So in, in education, in terms of access to education and being in the seat of a student, you do experience the need to assimilate um, frequently because if you look around, you're often by yourself, right? And as you stated in terms of what the data shows, but the higher you climb in terms of formal education, higher education, the more likely you are to be the only one to to finish the journey. And so you, you find yourself having to adapt and shift along the way. You find yourself having to identify with individuals that may not speak the same language or eat the same foods, but that you can still learn from and have some peer-to-peer -peer mentorship um, with to just make it through the journey and then using the opportunity to help others. In terms of politics though, we talked about geography a little bit. So if you're in a place like New York City, you're gonna find more uh, people of color in positions of elected leadership, right? However, if you're in places like the Poconos, you're not going to see that. And though we did have an influx of people of color and particularly Hispanic people who moved to the Poconos in, in the last 20 years, they still have not fully penetrated those spaces. I ran for state representative in 2016 and became the first Hispanic to make a state ballot in Monroe and Pike counties. That was just five years ago. That, that's the reality of what the data shows, right? And then when I did get on the ballot and I was knocking on doors, I heard things like, you know, you speak with an accent, you're not a local, you should be home with your children because my five-year-old twins were, you know, on the campaign trail handing out flyers and they really loved it. They love people, they love the energy. They say that they're going to run for office. So that is where we're able to shift the dynamics. When we help our children see the possibilities that we didn't see, right? Because we didn't have the role models, because we didn't have the, the opportunities or the experiences, then we shift the dynamics because their generation, for my kids, they expect to go to college. They expect to run for public office. They expect to be elected to public office. That's a very different mentality than those of us that have had to really fight. And the fight for social justice is every day. It's everything from the boardroom in the school district to you know the the boardroom in any of the organizations that I serve across the country, um, but even here locally, I was the first Hispanic to be elected um, to be um, appointed to the board uh, the board of the Broadhead Watershed Association. Hispanics care about the environment. However, there's a difference between individuals that come from the city who don't really understand how do I help maintain the waters? How do I help contribute to protecting our environment, right? So there's a level of education and support and connection that our organization knows is very important. And we've had informational events and have been deliberate about inviting diverse individuals to join. 
So, so when you talk about politics, sometimes issues like the environment may not be front and center when people of color do get to the table. Because, you know, if you've grown up in an urban community versus the suburbs versus another geographic area, the priorities are different too. So I would say it's across the board. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like what we've been talking about, it's all universal <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have one question that kind of ties into it, but mm -hmm. in regards to politics as the world kinds of, kind of becomes more progressive in a way, right? Um, you know, I think the starting off point and the foundation is different based on geography, but um, in the near future, when your your children maybe run for office or my child runs for office, who knows, when, in, in some near distant future, we hope, um, do you foresee it, because um, you were just interacting with the two of people trying to tell you that you're not from here, X, Y, and Z, um, that the need in, in politics per se, because I think it lives out in the public eye to lessen the need to assimilate. I hope so. And, and for the record, please plant the seed for your child that they, uh, that they can and should run for office. I, I hope so. Um, you know, I'm the type of person who is very comfortable standing out. So I don't feel the need to assimilate personally, just because I'm also patient enough with others to teach them what it's like to be me. And sometimes it does take more push than others, depending on the individual, depending on how receptive they are, depending on how much they actually want to learn about me. But I hope that we are making strides so that our children are able to show up as their authentic selves, because we use the word authentic leadership often. And, you know, we want people to be authentic. We want people to bring their full selves. And yet when people attempt to do that, we censor them. We don't want people to be their full selves. It just yep. sounds like the right thing to say, especially when it comes to the diversity conversation. And, and so, you know, it, right now, the social unrest and the issues that we're seeing and, and uh, you know, in the media and that we're seeing play out in our communities, it, it's, it's putting um, a sense of pressure and urgency for institutions and organizations to move. Some of those, as you talked about that yourself, they're creating the diversity officer positions. I mean, across the board, every day we see lots of posts about it. Some of those, even if not intended that way, are just to check off the box. That's what they're doing, yeah. right? Because mm -hmm. if the organization it does not have an environment conducive with these individuals and we're forcing individuals to assimilate, then you're really just checking off the box. So I'm hopeful, I, you know, but, but I'm also an optimist. I, I still believe in a government for the people and by the people because who better to tell us what are the issues that they need prioritized than the people going through those issues? Who better to inform the social justice movements that we are promoting right now than the people who have lived marginalized for generations? But, but it's taken public incidences to happen over the past year or so and a, and a global crisis for these issues to emerge to the place where they are right now. So I'm hopeful, but I can't say for sure. <laughs> and that's usually, that's usually the last question I ask is like, what are you optimistic about and what are you hopeful for? So I'm glad you addressed that stuff. Um, Cal, do you have anything? Well, I just want to say I, I appreciate your, your um you know, your persistence, you keep showing up, you keep being the one and only, which is, that's a huge amount of emotional labor that you're taking on. Um, so just appreciating you for that. Thank you. Yes, it, it is, it's, it's exhausting. I've been saying that a lot more lately. 
Um, and so I'll, I'll share this with you in terms of in terms of optimism. What I'm optimistic about is people being inspired by injustice to the point that they will step up to the plate and take on leadership roles. And I've been talking a lot over the past year about how crisis brings about leaders. And so you're either going to sit back and complain and, you know, just be bogged down by the crisis or you're going to step up to the plate and ask, what can I do and contribute? And that can mean getting engaged in your child's PTO or that can mean running for office or that can mean anything in between. But it means that if you really feel compelled to see difference, you're going to be part of the difference. So what I'm optimistic about is that more people will be inspired by social injustice, by prejudices that they experience or that they see others experience, and that that will bring about more allyship in terms of diversity of racial and ethnic communities, right? Because we can't sit around and just talk about white privilege and white supremacy if we don't talk about all privilege. I was born and raised in the projects in New York City. I'm a homeowner. My kids do not have the same experience that I had. And so understanding that I have privilege in a heterosexual family versus not understanding that my kids have privilege because of the socioeconomic status of their parents versus their parents growing up is important as well. So there are just a lot of DEI dynamics that, uh, that we can talk about. So hopefully we'll continue the dialogue. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll have you on when we talk about intersectionality. Yeah, I'm um, a committee at work on intersectionality and coalition building. All right. So perfect. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Uh, so that, that'll be part two of our conversation. Yeah. So thank you so much to Mary. Thank you for thank joining you. us. You don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, oh, no, no, this it. is great. Thank you. And it's an opportunity to reflect. But yes, Carol, I sometimes I'm exhausted. I woke up this morning thinking like maybe I need to throw in the towel on this on the school board piece. And um, and then I got a, a message on Instagram that one of my quotes was um, printed on a greeting card in this new company for um, by, uh, for highlighting women of color. And it, and, and it was exactly about his, remember your blessings, no matter what life circumstances you're facing. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I remember what I said. <laughs> I remember it's it's I said. terrible when your own words come back to you, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. favorite is when your when your kids say it back to you, then, 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 oh, it, then you really know. <laughs> that one's great. Especially when they're sassy about it. That's what awaits you, Peter. But mommy, you said, <laughs> I know I said it. I know what I said. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Thank you. Great talking with you both. We could have gone on for a while. So anytime I can hang out with you, let me know. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. Thank you again to Demary. Um, that was a great conversation about being the first. I think she's doing the Lord's work in Poconos. In yeah, movie. no kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me was, was kind of this thing that I, I referenced to Yasi about the show Insecure a lot, about the burden. So... TV show Insecure, um, Easter Ray uh, is probably like the only show, well now the only other show <laughs> on HBO that uh, has a, 
a predominantly black cast. I think everyone in that in that cast is black, but as a result of it, you kind of have the burden of being everything for everyone. Um, even though you, you have to speak on other people's experiences, even though they may not be your own, um, just the burden that comes with being the first, the only. Um, you kind of can't make a mistake, which, <laughs> which is tough. Um, uh, I think we spoke briefly about, you know, graduate being the first uh, uh, to get her doctrine, being the first in her family to do all these other things and leading by example. Uh, the burden of, of perfection that she mentioned also is, is just increases as you get further along. Yeah, and that burden of, of uh, you know, she talked about educating people, educating them about herself and her experience. And then, yeah, by, by um, extension, probably, most likely being asked to speak on behalf of a whole huge group of people and um, how, you know, here in the United States, we have these big, huge, broad categories of folks, you know, um, folks aren't Hispanic and Latino until they come to the States. Folks aren't white until they come to the States. They're not black. They're, you know, they're from their own nation or, or ethnicity. And, and here we, we just, you know, cobble together huge groups of people into these broad categories. And, um, yeah, so, and then, you know, there's obviously so much difference be, amongst those, those large groups of people yeah. as well as within, um, you know, the, the, the things that folks kind of typically think about when they think about diversity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, again, uh, thanks to Demary. Um, if you have any questions that you'd like us to tackle in the future, um, please send those to culturefitpod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can learn more about Damri and her background, as well as how to connect with her, in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. We also post the full transcript of our, of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show. I want to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Coaster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. Please take a minute to rate and review Mission Impact on wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the podcast, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and until next time.